0: Business class listeners, welcome to another episode of Wisco Weekly. This is episode number 200 of the show. 200. And on this episode, to end the year of 2021, this is a very educational episode dealing with SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies. And before we get into the episode, I want to lay a a baseline foundation of what SPACs are and some of the key definitions used. Um, in this space. So first off, what is a SPAC? Special Purpose Acquisition Company. This is a company that effectively has the ability to go public quickly with the goal of targeting another company to bring that company public. So let me give you an example here. Let's just say hypothetically, Mary Barra, Jim Farley, Elon Musk, and yours truly, Dennis Wisco, we all form BFMW Capital. And we say that in two years, we want to take a company public. We don't know which company it is, but we have two years to figure out which company to take public. We do our due diligence. We find out that Karma Automotive, which is a real company for those that don't know, Karma Automotive is a private company at the moment. And we think that they have a great business model and we want to take them public. And Karma Automotive thinks about: Should I go the IPO route, or should I go this SPAC route and partner with BFMW Capital? Karma Automotive says, "Okay, BFMW Capital, I will partner with you." At that point, this is called a SPAC target IPO because now Mary Barra, Jim Farley, Elon Musk, and I—we have now found a target company. that we will eventually take public. Now, as customary in this SPAC process, BFMW Capital will then start to get into discussions with a lot of the institutional banks, the institutional investors, and try to rally them to also support the public listing of karma. The reason why the these institutional investors are incentivized to partner with us is because they're able to invest into Karma Automotive at a discounted rate before the entire public gets to invest in this process. Once the actual date occurs in which that company goes public, we, we take Karma Automotive public, then a D SPAC happens in which now Karma trades on their own in the public markets under the hypothetical stock symbol KRMA, there's no more involvement of BFMW Capital. That is how the SPAC process works. On this episode, you'll hear from Jennifer Schulp, who is with the Cato Institute. And this episode deals with the fact that the SEC chair, Gary Gensler, is looking to research and find some recommendations to regulate the abilities for BFMW Capital, again, a hypothetical company, to take Karma Automotive public. So Gary Gensler is looking to regulate these SPAC-type business models. And Jennifer lays out the case of why we need to slow down this idea of regulating SPACs. So for those of you that are interested in investing in SPACs, definitely have a listen to this episode. Now, I want to share something with you, and that is SPAC statistics. So this is according to whitecase.com, and you can visit, this, you visit the episode page, and I'll put a link to this website. Since 2019, in 2019, there were 26 SPAC deals. In 2020, the the pandemic year, there were 93 SPAC deals. And in 2021, there was a record of 181 SPAC deals for a total. In three years, there was 300 SPAC deals totaling about $538 billion. The industry that leads all SPACs is the technology space, followed by the healthcare space, followed by industrials financials, media, entertainment, and about six more. Again, I will put on the episode page a link to this website, and you could look into these industries yourself. So on this episode, I want you to have a listen to Jennifer Schulp talk about why we need to rethink what Gary Gensler is proposing when he's thinking about regulating these SPACs. Also, for all you new listeners, thank you for tuning in to Wisco Weekly. Be, be sure you're subscribed to the show. I have plenty of more episodes that I will continue to do next year focusing on investments and targeting really the investment community in regards to automotive, finance, and technology. So you're in for a good treat. Thank you very much for all you loyal listeners who tune in weekly to the show. And now, Happy New Year again to you Let's get into the show. You are now tuned in
1: to the Wisco Weekly Experience.
0: Mabuhay, bienvenidos, vitater. Welcome and welcome to Wisco Weekly. Business class listeners, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the show, episode number 200 to end the year 2021. And on this episode, I'm very, very excited to talk to my guest. I came across my guest earlier this year, and you will see why. Uh, And I encourage you to visit the episode page to learn more about my guest and some of her work that she's been involved in. But recently, she penned an article on the Cato Institute website, regarding SPACs. And you know, I've talked about SPACs before. You know that I've lost a lot of money on SPACs. I'm not shy about sharing that with you all. But recently, their SPACs are coming under greater scrutiny. And so today, my guest will be sharing more about that. She's a proud Maroon from the University of Chicago, where she received her A.B. in political science and her J.D., she is the Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Men and women, please welcome to the show, Mrs. Jennifer Schulp. Jennifer, how are you?
1: I'm great. Thanks for having me on today.
0: Yes, and I, I'm very much looking forward to the conversations. It's almost surreal that I get to talk to you after seeing you testify before Congress at the GameStop hearing. And let me just, I want to share with you something here. So imagine if you will, that I'm sitting here in my office and I have a TV off to the side here and I have the, the hearing playing of, the, of GameStop and you have Maxine Waters going, you have uh, Melvin Capital going, you have uh, Ken Griffin and, and uh, what's uh, Vlad Tenev talking. And I'm hearing, I'm hearing the audio. I'm not really watching the video. I'm hearing the audio. And I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 I get all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, there's a female voice that comes on. and, And again, I'm not really paying attention to the video. I'm just listening to the audio. And then I just hear something to the crack of, and what happened with GameStop should not be an indication of the downside of the markets. The markets have created so much, um, has, has, has welcomed so many individual investors. It's been great. It's introduced a lot of money, a lot of new retail investors, people looking to create their individual wealth. And in my head, I'm like, whoa, did a quick turn to the TV. I'm like, who is this person talking? Because this is exactly what I thought should have been discussed at that hearing. So I'm glad you were the person to have brought that up. I mean, I know the GameStop hearing occurred, what, back in February or March? February. February. You know, we're at the end of the year here. Um, What has come out of that hearing?
1: You know, surprisingly little, but not nothing. (laughs) Okay. Um, There was so much interest at the beginning of the year, I mean, there were three hearings that the House Financial Services Committee put together. There was one hearing that the Senate Banking Committee put together. And there was a lot of fuss in January, February, March, and a little bit into April. And while there's been a lot of continued talk about retail investors, I think fortunately, there hasn't been a lot of rush to judgment about new regulations that should be put into place here um the SEC is starting to look at the concept of gamification and securities um I kind of say that I, I need to put the air quotes around gamification uh-huh. um but they're starting to look into whether or not that's an issue that needs to be dealt with with respect to retail investors there's been some talk about the idea of payment for order flow which we heard a lot about in uh-huh. that year yeah, and right. zero commission trading but we've seen little hard action take place thus far. And I think that's that's the right move.
0: Correct. Right. Um,
1: I I definitely don't want to see particularly knee jerk reactions here. But I think that there is a lot of recognition on the part of both Congress and the SEC that these new investors that have joined the market want to be there. And most, if not all of them, are not looking for additional government protection from their own decision making um and i think that's at least heartening that we we haven't seen anything that's moved in to stop them from making their own choices at this point
0: yeah i mean you know to me the whole gamestop fiasco was a david and goliath story and again it 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 was a one time occurrence maybe you could say that amc had a little bit of a you know they kind of danced in the moonlight of a, of a gamestop fiasco but gamestop it was a one time it was a one time Uh, event. And if anything, I do think that, you know, to your point, it kind of shows the power of individual investors and how finally, you don't need the institutional investors to kind of carry the workload of the entire US economy. If you indeed empower individual investors, they too can serve as an economic engine um, to, to drive economic growth.
1: Yeah, well, and I think that by having more retail investors involved, it allows people to take more control over their own financial situations as well. Not only are they participating in kind of the, the capital raise and the capital part of the U.S. economy, they themselves have the opportunity to grow their wealth as well through that. Through that type of investment. That said, not everybody makes great investment decisions. Correct. Um, some people will lose wealth along the way, but infringing on the ability of people to make those choices takes away a powerful engine for economic growth, both for companies and individuals in in the U.S.
0: And you know, I, I just to boil it down and add a little bit of you know financial advice and all this too, right? To me for all the new investors that have entered the markets, obviously for those that have not done really good. And if anything, maybe they've done really bad. It's probably because of a lack of education that they really just kind of went into a blind trial by error. Sometimes I think of these, you know, to equate it to an example of just buying a car. Sometimes when people buy a car, they don't know what they're getting themselves into. They might buy a lemon and it causes all these headaches. But if you just do a little bit of research, if you know a little bit about what's going on, you can make better informed decisions. And so hopefully that will be the case out of, you know, what's been going on with the entire Investor community, um, I, there's been so many new investors. Been, you know, I, I think it was like twenty billion dollars, if I recall correctly, of new money that has entered the capital markets since the pandemic, and so this is this is really good news for everyone that wants to take better control of their money and and of their individual wealth. Um, Yeah, did you have some of those?
1: Yeah, I I think, and you make an important point there that that what this is, is learning by doing in many ways. Um, People that are brand new to the markets, particularly younger people, haven't had this exposure before. And you can read about how to invest in a textbook. You can sit in your high school class and learn you know, risk reward and and think about, you know, learning about companies before you invest in them, all of which I, I endorse. But many times you don't really learn how the market works until you start investing yourself, until you have to figure out how much you're willing to grin and bear it through a downturn. Um, you need to find out your own tolerances. And that's very difficult to do until you're actually doing it in person. Right. So I think that it's a great opportunity for people new to the markets to really learn how they work and to make better decisions over time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, so Jennifer, I want to talk about you because I have I think there's many things that, that uh, are out there of you, whether if it's other podcasts, if it's, pardon me, if it's uh, articles you've written and penned, uh, but I specifically haven't been able to find a lot of things just personally about you. Maybe that's by design and by choice. However, I'd like to put you a little bit on the hot seat. You could disclose what you will, because I am interested in the fact that you know. On one hand, prior to your experience at Cato, you you know you have a, a breadth of experience in the in the law in the law field. You were uh, a lawyer at Gibson Dunn and Crutcher. You were you served as a clerk for Judge Grady Jolly of the U.S. Court of Appeals, and uh, eventually you're working at Cato. Tell me a little bit about how your either law experience, your family background, uh, you know, how has that shaped some of your personal views?
1: Well, say say personal views. I've I've been cons- had views consistent with Cato's support for markets and liberty, basically, as long as I can remember. But what has shaped kind of my my path to Cato thus far is that when I was in private practice, I did a number of things. I did some securities litigation, but I was a general litigator. And in those circumstances, you're trying to make the best argument you can for your client based on the set of facts, the set of law that's out there. After private practice, I went to FINRA where I focused on broker dealer regulation and enforcement. So I learned a lot more about the securities world. And again, I was focused on the law as it was. And in my role at FINRA, I was enforcing the law as it was, no matter how silly it was sometimes, no matter how obstructive to growth it could be, and i kind of hit the point where i was getting frustrated um with not being able to have any control or any say in what it was i was doing what so what do the, you mean
0: what do you mean by that
1: well when i was at Finra, i was an enforcement and your job as an enforcement attorney is to enforce the rules so you investigate you figure out if someone broke finra's rule or broke a federal securities law and then you bring the case if they in fact had done so. But if you looked at the rule and thought, huh, that rule kind of makes things worse if we enforce it. Or if you looked at the rule and said, man, sure, maybe they kind of broke that rule, but that really would ruin someone's career for something that wasn't a big deal. You really don't have the flexibility in many circumstances to change that Mm -hmm. um, or to make a decision inconsistent with that and that's that's the way enforcement should be i shouldn't have been had that discretion as an enforcement attorney to decide i don't want to enforce this rule because i think it's silly but i really wanted to start to think more broadly about the way the rules should look and the way that we should be regulating in the securities and capital markets in order to maximize growth for everyone and to make sure that people aren't being left out um, which led me to cato and say so the past going on two years now that i've been at cato i've really had the opportunities to do that something i find fulfilling but it's something that really has grown out of my experiences as an attorney and specifically my experiences at Finra.
0: The, the way that you were talking about how you would just apply more or less the letter of the law, this kind of this brings up um, the, the hearings of Amy Coney Barrett. And I would constantly hear of the, you know, her being an originalist. Is that kind of what you subscribe to then? Oh.
1: oh, goodness. <laughs> uh, somehow that triggered Siri to pop up something about Amy Coney Barrett. Uh. <laughs> I don't even know. I, thank you, Apple Watch, for trying uh. to contribute to the conversation. <laughs> I don't know what that was.
0: <laughs> That's funny. What Did we see any trigger keyword that would have said I Siri? I think
1: so. Maybe I was leaning on the watch, but she she found something about Amy Coney Barrett on the
0: web. Oh, all right. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so d- does that d- – does. Cause I'm not, too, you know, I'm not, I'm not from the legal world. So when, but I, I, every time she would bring up this terminology of she's an originalist, she's an originalist. Is that also how you kind of subscribed and practice law then too?
1: You know, the originalism concept really applies to constitutional law in, in, in most circumstances. Um, most of the time when you're lawyering day to day, you don't have to th- think about the broader question of how to interpret a document in order to get to the rule got it I um so most of what I would have done both in private practice and at FINRA was what's much more straightforward you look Mm -hmm. at what the rule says you look at the case law that interprets that rule and then you apply that to the facts that you have at hand and usually you can avoid needing to answer the questions like what is my judicial philosophy <laughs> when when you're I answering see. those types of questions.
0: Okay. That makes sense. Uh, I want to go back to something else. You said that, you know, you, you, you mentioned that it, ever since you, you know, growing up, you've always more or less aligned with Cato. Maybe if, if you didn't know about them or not, I personally couldn't say the same thing. I did grow up in a very conservative household um both my parents were reagan um you know advocates my, my middle name is named after ronald reagan so my middle name is ronald uh, but you know it was only until really the ron paul movement that i really became a more kind of a a, a student and now i believe a little bit more of an educated advocate of libertarianism what was it about your upbringing that you kind of already aligned with the Cato Institute's philosophies and values?
1: You know, I would say I grew up in a largely conservative type household as well, but there was more of a focus on kind of markets and how markets work. Okay. Um, I will host I it. Not that we were sitting at the dinner table talking about how markets work. I, that be a strange <laughs> family indeed. Those exist. No, I think that, that would was be, not my family. That would
0: be pretty cool. I'm not going to lie. I would enjoy it. <laughs>
1: but I... I was very interested in kind of economics from a young age. The the economics classes I took in high school, oddly enough, were skewed libertarian. Mm -hmm. Um, and that kind of confirmed what my viewpoint was at that point. I'll say I continued university of Chicago. I was a couple of degrees, a couple of classes short of an economics degree. So I spent a lot of time looking at how markets worked and, being attracted to the idea of—I mean, we go back and we talk about the invisible hand and yeah. mm-hmm. um, seeing governmental failures, seeing the inability of government to say reach the goals that it had set for itself in many ways mm-hmm. um, to solve the problems that it wanted to solve. When you could see that there might be a solution in the private market if the government would just get out of the way. Um, and say I, I definitely have skewed more towards markets and liberty than than kind of the conservative end. But I, it started early, and, yeah. and it continued.
0: Well, that's that's super interesting because that that nuance of the focus of the markets definitely I could see then really then starts taking down the path of being a libertarian or and, and aligning more with with uh, with Cato Institute philosophies and values. Okay, well, that's a that's a great background. I mean, honestly, I, I thank you for allowing me to engage in this conversation with you to learn more about you and your upbringing because I I thought it was super interesting hearing you talk so many different ways. I was like, well, I, I what is her background? Which, okay, now now let me let me pivot the conversation a little bit because just as much as the markets are highly speculative, I'm going to ask you to be highly speculative. Okay. So maybe let's, I'm going to throw you a little bit of a curveball here, right? So like, again, I'm trying to approach this conversation with you where I can kind of pick both sides of an argument here, right? Side with how you view it, side with how perhaps the SEC and Gary Gensler views it. I wanted to learn more about Gary Gensler and I was looking at his bio on the SEC website, right? And so I'm looking at his bio and he's been in and out of government. Um, He's a professor at, or was a professor at MIT. Maybe he's still there. Um, He worked at Goldman Sachs for a good number of time in the mergers and acquisitions department. And he has three daughters, a fairly normal human being, right? If we get back to, SPACs and essentially his discussion, his conversation of wanting to scrutinize SPACs more, have his team provide some recommendations. I'm trying to match his language, his words to his bio. And I, I don't know if I could find that match it took, Cause to me, it seems like he's a successful guy. He would probably want others to, to follow in his footsteps, but a regulation in SPACs to basically protect those who would be deemed as unreasonable investors, that's who he's trying to look out for. And I, I just, I don't know if I understand where a guy like Gary Gensler, Gary Gensler, the chair, you know, comes from. Like, how, how does someone like him come up with these types of recommendations based on his upbringing?
1: yeah that i can't really speak to um but what i can say is that there's a very different view that some hold about what it means to protect investors okay and as part of the sec's mandate the sec has a mandate to protect investors and you can look at that from a number of different ways and gensler's view tends to be that we protect investors by helping them to make I say not helping I'll take back helping by preventing them from making poor choices um which Hmm. you know might protect people but it also takes away the choices and the ability of people to help themselves um the SEC is in a I'll say the, the protection mandate puts itself in an awkward position often because what protects some investors hurts others. Correct. And I say there's there's a big divide at the SEC between people like Gary Gensler or people like Commissioner Hester Peirce, who have very different views on what it means to protect. Um, I, of course, side with Commissioner Peirce's views, which tend to focus more on giving people the information that they need to make their own decisions rather than taking away the choices of people. To make bad decisions, um, it's not the SEC's role to decide if a decision is good or bad.
0: Well, correct, and I guess I I don't understand, you know, to someone like a Gary Gensler persona, of where he thinks that somehow in the markets that he's able to control an aspect of it so as to prevent investors from any you know bad decisions. It's like there's there's so many there's so many things in that chain that you cannot control that if all of a sudden you start to look at markets, you look at SPACs and say, hey, well, this is how we need to regulate it because we need to prevent bad decisions. It's like, whoa, you've skipped so many steps in that process. And again, I'm still confounded at how someone like Gary Gensler can come to this conclusion.
1: Yeah. And again, I can't really speak to where he's coming from exactly, but I think that there's certainly more of a faith on behalf of people that are in that progressive vein that the government's going to make the right decision here and that it's all going to work out in the end that's not to to state that they don't understand that the mar- how the markets work that they they don't see the complexity but i think at, at base there's much more of a faith in the power of the administrative state, the power of Congress, the power of the executive to make decisions for people's lives
0: mm-hmm. and to
1: make the right decisions. I um, say so I certainly don't have that faith.
0: Well, it's, and so you know there, there's a kind of this underlying concept then that um, you know which which would be kind of the the first principle analysis of Gary Ginsler's a recommendation again of protecting investors, to which then you can bifurcate this concept of investor between reasonable investors who don't need the protections of, you know, the the recommendations that he's looking into, and you have unreasonable investors. Help me understand who are the reasonable and who are the unreasonable investors.
1: Yeah, and on that front, I think I'd like to call them sophisticated versus unsophisticated. OK. Um, because reasonable also carries some sort of legal connotation behind it. Um, the reasonable yeah. investor is someone that is this mythical legal being that we think about.
0: Okay. So yeah. when
1: when we're talking about, and let me go back and set the stage a little bit more with um, what Gensler is kind of proposing in the SPAC space. Um, So he's proposing that there needs to be additional regulation over SPACs, and he's looking at kind of three areas for adding regulation. One is to require SPACs to make more disclosures about conflicts of interest between the SPAC sponsors and other investors and the retail investors. Um, Disclosures about how someone's stock might be diluted throughout the the process. Disclosures about what the fees are that an investor can can encounter. That's one area. The second area is that he is looking at requiring SPACs to have a similar requirement to IPOs with respect to what are called forward-looking statements. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you think about forward-looking statements, it's basically a company's management trying to predict where the company is going to be in the future.
0: I mean, it's essentially their their bias of a positive outlook towards their future in which then the legal language has to be like, well, this is considered a forward-looking statement and there's certain elements that, you know, the public has to know about when a company makes a statement like this
1: exactly and in for a public company that exists already they can use that legal language and it, it kind of lessens their liability it yep. puts okay. them into what we call a safe harbor legally mm-hmm. speaking but that safe harbor is not available for ipos um so basically when you look at an ipo document you never see any information about where a company's management thinks the company is going to go um, on with specs on the other hand the company is not subject to that same type of liability. Um, They're still subject to liability. There's a number of different types of liability provisions that might exist. So a company that is a SPAC target, it can't lie about where they think the company's going to go. That's that's still against the rules. Um, They have to have a reasonable basis for saying what they're saying. Um, They can't commit fraud but there's a different level of liability that applies in the ipo context to forward-looking statements and gary gensler has suggested that the spac target um, should be subject to the same liability that you would have in an ipo situation Hmm. which at the end of the day is going to result in spac targets um, the companies that are going to become public saying much less about what management thinks is going to happen to the company in the future. Um, so that was the second area that he was looking at in, um, in bringing more regulation. And the third is looking at increasing or confirming liability for um, the organizations that help with the SPAC so in the ipo process we call those the underwriters uh-huh. um, which are the big banks uh, you know goldman sachs um, and others who help bring those ipo companies to market uh, in the ipo context those companies are subject to very strict liability for the information that conveyed at the time of the ipo um, in the spac context if there's a goldman sachs is bringing a spac target or is working with a SPAC, they're more of an advisor and not an underwriter. And I say it's a little bit of an open legal question right now, but the general assumption is that they're not subject to the same level of liability. Mm -hmm. So he's looking to try to put the big banks more on the spot in the SPAC process than before. It was a very long roundabout way for me to get back to talking about sophisticated versus unsophisticated investors. And Gensler's concern is that the unsophisticated investor, so basically your mom and pop investor, um, you know, doesn't understand first what the fees are and the conflicts of interest that might be associated with a SPAC are. Um, Two, that mom and pop don't understand that a management's forward-looking projection is likely to be overly optimistic and three, that mom and pop are not being adequately protected right now by Goldman Sachs, (laughs) Um, which is ironic because in a lot of other contexts, the sec and Gensler in particular are very critical of the big banks, Mm -hmm. but they're looking here to make sure that the big banks are more on the hook and thinking that the big banks are protective of the little investor. Um, The difference here is that things institutional investors or sophisticated investors are probably okay, but what their action that they're looking for is to protect the little guy. I don't think any of this ultimately ends up protecting the little guy. Um,
0: Well, and I think the little guy too, going back to your terminology of unsophisticated, I mean... Again for those that are that have entered the market that are you know investing trial by error I mean yes those would be the those would be the unsophisticated investors and obviously investing carries risk so you know and again I'll I've shared this story before and I'll share it with you here again the company that I invested in that I learned my lesson the hard way was Excel Fleet now I will say also that Excel Fleet, which is a company that uh, can take your traditional um, trucks by Ford, GM, Chevy, take out the the gas engine, replace it with an electric drivetrain. I thought that was a great example of how uh, this is a sustainable operation where you don't have to produce new cars. You could take existing cars, the shell, everything is great still and just put an electric powertrain. So I thought I did my due diligence on this. I made the investments and then I lost a lot of money as that stock just absolutely tanked throughout the coming days and months. But then, if you look at a lot of the historical trends of these uh, companies that were targeted by SPACs, they have the same trends. They, you know, once once the SPAC merges with this target company, stock kind of goes up, and then it just constantly falls down. I mean, I can name for you at least a lot in the automotive and the electric mobility space where this happened a lot. And I can recall that the CEO of specifically, let's say, uh, this is Lordstown Motors. Like I thought, so this is where, this is an example where I was like, well, maybe we do need some, a, a little bit of, I won't call it regulation, but additional protections. Because you had the Lordstown Motors CEO come out on CNBC and he was doing his whole tour, his press tour. And he was saying specifically, well, we have taken in, I forget the quantity, but let's just say we have taken in a thousand deposits on orders, and all the interviewers then would ask him, "Well, are these actual orders?" And he would go back and say, "These are a thousand deposits on orders." Well, sure enough, fast forward three, four months later, after they go public, and those deposits meant nothing. In in an example like that, how what is the role of government, or what is the role of protection against investors? Is this just a matter of, look, trial by error, you learn your lesson and do better next time?
1: You know, I think it's a it's a complicated question and one that I've got a lot of answers to what you just put out. But I'll start with the fact that investing is risky. And investors should i think as you did do your due diligence and that's no guarantee that you're going to make money even if you've done your due diligence and particularly when we're looking at SPACs, what SPACs are designed to do are to bring earlier stage companies to the public markets and the risk return there is that those companies are more likely to fail but they're also more likely well they're if they do well they are in a position to have their higher growth phase take place in the public markets rather than the private markets. Now, in the private markets, only about 10% of investors in the country can access those private markets because they're limited by what's known as the accredited investor definition, um, which prohibits investment in private markets unless you make at least 200 grand a year or are worth over a million dollars. Um, So over time, what's happened is companies have stayed private for longer for a whole host of factors, but also including the fact that going through an IPO is a pretty burdensome process Mm -hmm. and average people can no longer invest in those. Um, they, they miss the, the growth opportunities that used to take place in the public markets because they're limited in what they can do in the private markets now where those companies exist. SPACs are meant to bring those companies to the public markets. Um, I think that type of choice and that type of opportunity is something that we should protect for people. But that choice and opportunity brings with it attendant risks and, the view that I have is that the role here is to help people understand what those risks are. Um, when we're talking about the the things that Gensler is taking a look at, disclosure, liability, um, there might be better disclosures that could happen around SPACs. Um, I say that hesitantly because if you've ever looked at investing documents, it's relatively unlikely that better disclosures or more disclosures are going to teach you much. Correct, right. um, I've spent a lot of time reading investment documents. Uh, as a lawyer, I don't like to read them. <laughs> um, and, I have a
0: lot of sympathy for you for the fact that you it. do have to read those.
1: Yeah, they're pretty dense. Uh, putting you know a chart in the back that talks about possible dilution is not going to help educate investors much more but it's worth thinking about whether there are specific targeted disclosures that can help people better understand what they're investing in but for me that's kind of where we finish drawing the line then it's up to us to help people make better choices in you know whether that's public education campaigns about hey don't invest in something just because it's hawked by ex celebrity which is good advice but is advice that we need to repeat often All right um, and to explain that there's more risk with these with these types of investments because of the nature of the investment um, it's certainly not a sure bet um, and getting in early means you're more likely to lose money than if you got in later but nothing's a guarantee i'll say what happened with lordstown motors and i don't want to t- talk specifically about it but Fraud happens in the public markets with companies that have IPO'd and gone through the whole process. It's it's not unheard of. Right. So to specifically focus on some bad circumstances that happened with SPACs is also not the right way to to consider whether more regulation is needed here or not.
0: I mean, I was ultimately, right. I, I I think that if if I can understand the the general principle being applied here is that the idea of SPACs is a good thing because it, A, for the investor, it welcomes another opportunity for an investor to um, take part in the growth of a company. For the company that is being targeted as a SPAC to go public, they potentially have a really good business model that just needs more capital in order to scale properly. So that is also a good thing. Effectively, as you start to regulate this type of model, you then you do start to limit the opportunities on both the investor and both those companies as they are looking to grow.
1: You do, and you also lose the long term benefit of some of these companies being public. There's a lot of talk about you know the discipline that comes with a company that's public, um, the reporting, the auditing, and other things that tend to make for stronger companies in the long-term. Whereas if they remain private, they're not subject to the same rules in that space. So we would like to encourage companies um, to be public in in certain circumstances. So long-term bringing more companies public can have us have stronger companies separate and apart from the idea that we simply, you know, can allocate capital to them better, which is a big plus as well. Mm-hmm. But I think that having multiple paths to the public markets allows different type of comp- different types of companies to take advantage of them, and opens up more opportunities for individual investors in particular, um, but all types of investors.
0: So I want to go back to your article here that you'd written dubbed SPACs in the SEC's crosshairs. And you wrote in here that instead of setting sites on further regulating innovation in public listings, the focus should be on understanding why many companies have preferred to stay private rather than go through a traditional IPO. I'm, I'm curious, i was trying to really understand this statement of yours why that we should be looking at companies that have chosen to go private rather than going public why why is this something that's, why is this of concern for you or why is it that this should be a focus
1: for me it should be a focus because what we're looking at here is that there is obviously we'll take the spac boom so mm-hmm. over the past 2 years there have been a number of companies that were private and were happy to go public via SPAC and to be a public company, but had themselves not been pursuing an IPO prior to that. So these are companies that felt that they were ready to be public companies and were ready to take on the burdens of being a public company, but didn't want to go through the IPO process. And that is a big problem to me. That shows that there's something in the IPO process itself that is deterring companies from following a path to the public market I see, I see. Um, where they would otherwise be public. Um, not to downplay the fact that SPACs, SPACs are expensive. Um, SPACs have a lot of liability attached to them through any number of venues. But IPOs are exceedingly expensive. And companies have to devote a lot of attention to an IPO when it's happening. Um, It's a multiple month process back and forth with the SEC. I've heard it's not uncommon. Companies spend over a year focusing to get ready for an IPO. Um, Some of that undoubtedly is good. They're getting their house in order, but Some of that, I think we should be asking the question, is some of that just regulatory burden? Is it unnecessary? Is it waste? And is it keeping companies who would otherwise be available to investors in the publicly traded market, keeping those companies away from investors?
0: I got to tell you, as you're talking about this, right, because I absolutely agree, it's the, the IPO process has merits, but obviously it's a very long, lengthy and costly process. Which effectively, you know, is put in place, a for uh, greater scrutiny and greater "quote unquote" protections, but at the same time, too, a lot of it, a little bit unnecessary, especially when there are companies that are tried and true and they just they don't need to go through this, you know, dog and pony show, and you know, show their company to all these different investors to get all these institutional investors involved. It's like they have all that already in the mix, but obviously, there are companies that are younger, that don't have that same history, that the same kind of a tight operation where these newer companies may have to go seek out a SPAC. These companies that are seeking out a SPAC are, you know, finding some very rich uh, private equity companies, venture capital money, which then gets to, again, this is what I was thinking about as you were talking. was that, you know, you have Elon Musk's tax bill, which is being, which he says is going to be about $11 billion. I mean, Again, to your point of like, why are there a lot of these private companies that aren't going public? If there was almost this pool of funds to the tune of $11 billion, right? What could that do for the capital markets? What could that do to individual investors? I don't know. I, I think that Elon Musk, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's a better use of Elon Musk's money. I think that's that's been touted a lot in the Twitter sphere of how, you know, that this 11 billion dollar tax bill could better be spent from elon versus the government right
1: yeah i tend to think that i don't want to give the government 11 extra billion dollars period yeah but one of the reasons the companies have been able to remain private is because there's a lot of money in the private markets venture capital funds private equity there's been a lot of Money that's allowed companies to stay private, which is good. I'm all for choice here. If a company wants to remain private, um, that opportunity should be available as well. But there's cachet that comes with being a public company. There's benefits that come with being a public company. And what we don't want to get in the way is you know, governmental, reg- unnecessary governmental regulation that causes a company to choose to remain private when they would otherwise want to be public. Hmm. And I I fear that the the IPO process itself is a deterrent in that process. I say an interesting side note to all of this is the IPO process, a lot of the IPO process, there is regulation involved and we've talked about today some of the liability, some of the limits on information that can be shared on account of the liability. But a lot of the IPO process is subject to custom and tradition. This is the way that we've always done it. This is the way the big banks expect it to be done. And it's changed a little in the past decades. But what we're seeing now with competition from things like SPACs and direct listings, which we haven't talked about at all today, but it's another alternative to becoming Uh publicly traded, we're seeing the IPO process get a little bit more play in the joints. Um, Banks are willing to talk about non-traditional IPOs, um, changing lockup periods um, and, and starting to think a little bit harder about if the way things have been done is the way that they should be done, is that best serving companies and investors. Um, this is the market at work, um, yeah, right? Yeah. We're, we're seeing evolution in a process because competition is causing that process to evolve. And what I think is a net negative for everyone is shutting down that competition.
0: So tell me about, with with SEC chair gary gensler looking into regulating spacs and essentially having these recommendations put put forth to him how long do you think this process is and you know ultimately what can the rest of us do in order to pull back the reins of enforcing any sort of regulation, you know, kind of, this reminds me of the whole GameStop fiasco. It's like, look, it was at the moment, in the heat of the moment, yes, it, it looks really bad for both sides and there's winners and losers and, you, and, and there's not a whole lot of equity in that system. And you, you want to do everything you can to make sure that people are right, you know, or the people that have been burned are somehow, uh, they, they get some retribution, more or less, right? That could be the same case now where, again, SPACs over the last couple of years, there's so many more SPACs, many SPACs, investors are getting burned from these SPACs. So hence, you're having Gary Gensler look into this. How do we kind of slow this ship so that we we take a little bit more time before we try to put forth any regulations that doesn't allow more of these startup companies to go public via SPAC?
1: Yeah, well, I think your your point about the things might look crazy in the moment, but there needs to be a long term view is an important one. Um, I think we're going to see SPACs are going to continue to evolve. And I think if we look right now, there was an excess of SPACs over the course of the past year to 18 months, um, so much so that a lot of them are not going to be able to find targets. Yeah. Um, And as we continue to see people make investments, the SPAC, the newly traded, the newly public company doesn't do well after the the de Mm spacking I think SPACs are going to be, lose some of their shine for investors and people will make choices to to move off of them. They will become less of the hot new thing and will evolve into the ecosystem and evolve with the ecosystem. Um, But more directly to to your question, so so gensler kind of went on the Spac media blitz last week or the week before i say sometime earlier in december and that was his signal that they're they're working on rules um it's on the sec's agenda at the moment um but there are a lot of things on the sec's agenda at the moment um unfortunately I'll say from the cynical view, I think there is little that will stop Gensler from having new rules proposed mm-hmm. in the coming months. Um, and it might not be the next month or two months, I'm sure. talking about over the course of probably 2022, but it's important to engage with the SEC on the rulemaking process and let your voice be heard. Um, whenever the SEC proposes a rule, they they ask for public comment and they expect comment um, from average, everyday investors. Um, you'll see a lot of people. You'll see me <laughs> writing comments. You'll see the big banks writing comments, usually written by their lawyers. Um, so if you look at a comment file and see that there are you know, 30 letters, all of which are 30 pages and longer, don't be intimidated um they're perfectly happy to get and do should look at um comments from average investors that are a couple of lines long that are an email that just say we're we don't need this protection or here's the problem with the rule or i don't think this would solve the problem with the rule to just let the sec know what your opinion is um otherwise it's you know get involved (laughs) um Speak up. Uh, talk to your investment advisor. Talk to your friends. Talk to whoever, um, and be engaged. Say, unfortunately, the the SEC's rulemaking process is not quite Congress, so I can't say call your representative.
0: Right, right.
1: But you know, there's been movement on this in Congress as well. There were a couple of SPAC rule, or a couple of SPAC bills passed out of the House Financial Services Committee. Um, Well, it doesn't look like they're going to be calendared for the full House anytime soon. It's always useful to let Congress know that you don't like that bill Uh (laughs) Um, because the SEC here is taking its cues from Congress in some ways um, as well. so the, the thing to do is to, to be vocal in any way you can be vocal. But well, I, as, don't I, don't sleep on the SEC's comment process.
0: I mean, I, I certainly know that the easier thing for me to do, which I'm already doing, is just provide additional education on, on investments. And I'll continue to do to, to do that. And I again I don't mind. You know, being the scapegoat here, I don't mind being the donkey of like, oh, hey, don't do what Dennis did when he invested in this one company. Great, learn from my experience, right? I can afford that risk. Um, but I will say, I I think Jennifer, you have motivated motivated me to submit a public comment if, if and when this comes out. I will. I'm looking forward to writing my first scathing public comment. I will feel very good and justified about it, and I will do it. I, again, I'll have to follow well, when indeed the, they allow public comments, but I will certainly do it. So, <laughs> but thank you for that. Okay, I want to pivot this conversation to to back to Jennifer here, okay, and I, I want to know again a little bit more about you. And specifically, one of the things that I always like to ask uh, about my guests is their ability on making decisions or the process by which they make decisions. Um obviously you have a very unique background. Well, everyone's background is pretty unique. So, but nonetheless, the way that they come to decisions is is often a unique process. So I'm curious on your end, like can you maybe describe for me the art and science of Jennifer's decision-making process?
1: Sure. So that's a tough question. And thinking about it, um, i would say I think the important thing in my decision-making process is to start off with I am a pretty risk-averse person, um, which is pretty amusing given that I talk about investments and, and all of these things all the well, time. Well, but
0: you're an attorney, though, too, so <laughs> that makes, that makes so sense. So
1: I'm I'm pretty risk-averse. Um, so decision-making for me tends to be trying to get over the hurdle of doing something new to find that the benefits outweigh the costs Or the, or the benefit of continuing to do the same thing. So I collect a lot of information. Um, I do a lot of, you know, on the fly cost benefit analysis in my head. Um, Uh say the pro con, the pros cons list. Um, But I also... Say less so in professional decisions and in personal decisions. I, you know, guided a little bit by my gut on that front. It just so happens to be that my gut is risk averse.
0: All right.
1: <laughs> um. But I'm that's, I'm that's- a researcher. I'm a thinker. I'm a plotter on on making decisions. I like to make sure that I check my boxes where I can.
0: Are you? So you said you do a lot of the kind of cost benefit analysis, and you know, thinking in your head. Are you mapping it out visually also? Or I some, usually,
1: Yeah, I usually don't. I usually keep things in my head where I say instead of visually mapping things out, I tend to talk through decisions. Um, so I don't write lists, but I will corner my husband and make him listen to my thought process um, because that helps me to put things in order if I can talk it through.
0: Um, again, just to, so you have your husband as kind of on your board of decision-making, um, do you have anyone else or, you know, cause I imagine, right. There's a little bit of biasness on your husband's part. That could be a good thing or a bad thing, right? Obviously there's can be support for it, or sometimes he could also be the voice of opposition, but there also can be other people who, you know, that it's like, I don't care for your support or opposition. I care of your expertise on this. Do you seek out those uh, individuals as well?
1: I do. I I have kind of the, the board of directors, but the board of directors for me shifts depending on the subject area. So I know some people, you know, have their trusted advisors that they go to for everything. Um, I definitely have different groups of people based on whether it's a professional decision or a personal decision um, or somewhere in the middle. Uh-huh. So I have people whose opinions I trust, I say within kind of their specialties yeah. and right, their specialty right. is whatever I've dubbed their specialty <laughs> to be might not be the one they recognize as
0: their own. The, the risk averse nature of you is, has that been a long time coming or was there just kind of, is that just a, with upon maturity um, and, you know, responsibility and the fact that there, there's more at stake in life as you get older? Cause I, I would say, I'm the same way. I I still have a little bit of good risk tolerance, especially when it comes to professional and, and business related aspects. But certainly as I've gotten older, you know, my personal wealth has accumulated. I'm definitely not as, you know, risk tolerant as I used to be. You know, you could say that I'm getting closer to being more risk adverse. But for you, has this always been the case or has this just come with more maturity on your part?
1: you know i think it's always been i think this is part of my nature i've always been relatively risk averse um i will say depending on what it is it's gotten more risk averse as i've gotten older Uh, my example on that is i am no longer skiing black diamonds um (laughs) um, but that is probably just a continued calculation on i'm not that coordinated Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so it's the same aversion it's just that i have made put a you know understood that the greater risk is now there um because i was not you know gung-ho on that to begin with but i i think that's i think risk aversion is part of my nature um it's probably what led me to the law in in some ways and the law only reinforced that
0: okay great amen well thank you for that <laughs> Business class listeners, I encourage you to check out the episode page where you could find links to Jennifer's article, Jennifer's bio, and just to follow Jennifer as a whole. Uh, Jennifer, people can follow you through Twitter, or what's the best way people can get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Jennifer J. Um, all of the work that I do shows up on my Cato Scholar page, which you can find through cato.org. Um, and I am also with my normal name on LinkedIn, where I tend to post a lot of my
0: work as well. Great. And I'll put uh, links of her Twitter uh, handle and her LinkedIn on the episode page. Jennifer, thank you very much. It's certainly very enlightening to have this discussion with you, to to see you actually in front of me versus on a TV. Um, so that's... Uh, that's thank you for for making my year. I appreciate that. And thank you for the work that you are doing with the cato Institute as well.
1: this is a great conversation. Glad to be on.
0: Business class listeners as we in every episode. Cheers. Keep us Kampai yamas vo salute and to the customer experience. to take to Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Wisco Weekly. Wisco Weekly is part of the podcast channel, Not Your Father's Economy, exclusively on Apple Podcasts. Consider becoming a paid subscriber of Not Your Father's Economy, where you can receive bonus episodes, ad-free episodes that are intended to give you actionable insight to help you professionally and personally. Become a paid subscriber of Not Your Father's Podcast. For just $8.49 a month or $94 for the year and you can cancel anytime. Also, please consider giving Wisco Weekly a rating and review. It's much appreciated. Thanks for tuning in.
1: Wisco Weekly is providing this information for educational purposes only. We are not providing legal, accounting, or financial advisory services, and this is not a solicitation or recommendation to buy or sell any stocks, options, or other financial instruments or investments. Examples that address specific assets, stocks, options or other financial instrument transactions are for illustrative purposes only and may not represent specific trades or transactions that we have conducted. In fact, we may use examples that are different or the opposite of transactions we have conducted or positions we hold. This site and any information or training therein is also not intended as a solicitation for any future relationship, business or otherwise between the members or participants and the moderators. No express or implied warranties are being made with respect to these services and products. All investing and trading in the securities market involves risk. Any decisions to place trades in the financial markets, including trading in stock or options or other financial instruments, is a personal decision that should only be made
0: after thorough research, including a personal risk and financial assessment, and the engagement of professional assistance to the extent you believe necessary.